We are back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. More than half of all homeless youth in Atlanta have experienced some form of human trafficking. The Atlanta Youth Count, a Georgia State University study, surveyed over 500 young people who are homeless on everything from personal demographic information to childhood trauma to their interactions with their peers. The new study paints a harrowing and at times hopeful picture of young people living on Atlanta's streets. It is one of the most comprehensive studies to date on this population, and it was led by Dr. Eric Wright, professor and chair of sociology at Georgia State University, joining me in the studio. Dr. Wright, thank you for being with us. Good morning. And Anna LeBoy is a doctoral student at Georgia State who was project manager for the study also with us. Anna, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. So, Eric, more than half of homeless youth encountering trafficking, that is alarming. But to better understand how you got to these numbers and got the trust and, and understanding of this population, you began documenting youth homelessness. This was back in 2015, the first iteration of the youth homelessness count. So how did that lead you to where you are now in the Atlanta youth count? Well, as some folks may remember, in 2015, when we began this work, there was a lot of questions about um, sex trafficking in particular and what was the involvement of young people who were involved in commercial sex work of various sorts. So when we started that study, we added a bunch of questions in that survey, and we were kind of surprised by the numbers. When we finished that report, um, we had the opportunity to apply for funding from the National Institute of Justice, who are really interested in understanding the prevalence of trafficking more broadly. So when we were redesigning the study and wanting to do it again, we decided to expand the questions about trafficking. So in addition to asking uh, more detailed questions about commercial sex, ex sexual exploitation, we also added a series of questions about labor trafficking that were developed by the Urban Institute. So that's an important distinction here between labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Help us understand that difference and, and what both look like when it comes to homeless youth in Atlanta. Well, the distinctions are sort of um, I would say academic in some ways because the uh, distinction between force, fraud, coercion of, for labor is sometimes overlapping with commercial sexual exploitation, and they often go together. And I think one of the things that we learned on the sort of in terms of the practical conversations we had used that some youth may experience a single episode of trafficking that might actually involve all four types. Um, but the problem is that um, the federal government and a lot of researchers are trying to distinguish between that. And I think what's also more interesting about that is that the labor trafficking is a lot more common than commercial sexual exploitation, mm -hmm. which sort of runs counter to some of the imagery that we hear when people talk about trafficking. Right. Anna, you spent a year in the field working with homeless youth across the five metro counties of Atlanta and other student interviewers. So uh, help us understand, what are, what are some of the examples of labor trafficking that you heard about from people you spoke to? Um, so some of the examples of labor trafficking, which one would fall into fraud, could be something like you worked for 12 hours, but they only paid you for six hours. Um, some of these youth also do some informal activities, so they may be paid under the table. So it may be a little harder to understand, you know, how much they should be paid. Um, individuals may do coercive acts, like taking their IDs from them um, in exchange for them working somewhere or doing particular kinds of work. Um, so that would be examples of labor trafficking. So how do you distinguish that as trafficking instead of just fraud <clears throat> or um, misuse or, or abuse of labor? So the way that the federal government defines it is that under somebody that you work for, you have to experience force, fraud, coercion, um, in order to be labor trafficked. So if someone you work for, for instance, keeps your ID, then that is considered to be labor trafficking. All right. So when we do hear the word trafficking, uh, our minds go straight to sex trafficking, mm -hmm. as you pointed out. Even further, the image of a cisgendered white female, for the mm -hmm. most part. How do you get people to think about or understand more 
common trafficking situations that typically don't look like that? Well, I think um, I'm not sure how we get people to understand that. I think part of it is because a lot of organizations have used those imageries to grab people's attention. I think I think as more and more research is done, I'm, we're really understanding this is a much more complex and a much more multifaceted problem. And I think here in the metro Atlanta and perhaps in the south, I don't know, but it's heavily African-American. Um, the, actually, we found a lot more men being trafficked, particularly for their labor, than we realized. I think, so I think the reality is, um, and I think this is one of the reasons that the NIJ funded this particular project as well as other projects trying to study the prevalence because we don't really have good data. Most of the uh, egregious examples are prosecutor-based data sets where it's the people who are prosecuted. And I think that tends to sort of skew our perspective mm-hmm. on the situation. Right. And so uh, what would be examples of things that young men are, are, are used for? What kind of labor situations? Um, so we heard uh, quite a few things happening in like some generic industries like construction. So um, we had some of our youth who may have been in construction job sites who were not paid what they should have been, but they also may not have been like actually registered to work, right? They may not be given their IDs in these kind of situations. Um, And so those were kind of the examples that a lot of the men have or in different kinds of under the table jobs in restaurants throughout the city. Um, We heard a lot of examples of that, like they're busboys, but they're not being paid properly for their hours. And drug trafficking, too. Drug trafficking trafficking. as well. Okay, so used as mules or people who are um, selling on the streets. Well, you mentioned African-Americans, and I would love to get to that, but the the demographics of the people that you spoke to found a high percentage of homeless youth LGBT. 23% identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. 6% identified as transgender. Now, Eric, you make the breakdown, you make a distinction here between the LGBT. In fact, Mm -hmm. pull them apart into separate groups when analyzing the data. Why? What, what's, what's different with trans homeless youth? Well, I think one of the things that researchers are starting to realize is that the LGBT category is actually a very heterogeneous category and that there's different situations that evolve in that. The one common theme that runs across the four groups in that category um, is basically a lot of family rejection in the South. It's not surprising. This is exactly the same finding we had actually in 2015. I mean, the percentages are remarkably similar. Um, But most of them reported having been thrown out of their homes or having difficult family relationships in part driven by their sexual or gender identities. So you also found a disproportionately high prevalence of African-American youth. Can you give us a sense of like what that proportion was? Um, like how, how many African-Americans compared to the rest of the population? So we actually found about 80% would be classified as either um, African-American only or mixed race when most of our individuals who identified as mixed race were African-American and some other race or ethnic background, which is actually also quite similar to what we found in 2015. So does having multiple identities uh, oppressed, say being black and bisexual or homosexual, predict poorer outcomes? Um, we haven't really dive, uh, dove into the data in terms of looking at intersectional questions like that. We're starting to look at that. We do find, though, that multiple minority statuses tend to magnify these problems. Probably the bigger impact here is the um, we do find big differences by um, being trans is uh, very much of a risk factor for a whole variety of reasons, and LGB as well. Um, but being black doesn't sort of jump out as sort of 
increasing rates in certain categories. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that cuts across all of them is the rates of trauma in their backgrounds. Um, most of the youth, I mean, the vast majority of the youth experience some sort of trauma in their background that may have, in fact, been causally related to their becoming homeless. And then the, we also find that the longer that they're homeless, the more likely they are to be trafficked. So, Anna, that's something that you really looked into, the relationship between homeless youth and childhood trauma. How did you, there was a way that you actually helped rate these or understand better these childhood traumas. Can you give us a sense of that scale and what are the things that you came across over and over again? Yeah, so we used the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, which was developed by the CDC originally um, with Kaiser Permanente, and that goes to look at the different kinds of childhood traumas you could have. So things as like emotional trauma in your home, somebody in your home being mentally ill, and this occurs before the age of 18. So in the general population, individuals usually score between a one and a two. That's usually about the average. Our population scored anywhere between like a three and a five on the average, with about 60% of our youth scoring above a two, which means that they had adverse like trauma in their background. So probably complex trauma, many different right. layers. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of them did have that. We had high percentages that were six, seven traumas, um, which are very high in relation to this scale. So to pick up on what Eric said, how does a history of trauma affect the susceptibility to trafficking? Um, so we know that trauma is interrelated to many different health outcomes. So there's many publications and research around this. Um, trauma is, in our study, extremely linked to all forms of trafficking for fraud, coercion, and commercial sexual exploitation, um, both over the lifetime and while they're homeless. Um, and so we see these things kind of interplaying and working with one another. Um, there's been previous studies that have looked at childhood trauma, looking at the ways in which it affects different kind of coercive behavior and health risks. Anna LeBoy there, doctoral student at Georgia State University. Also with me, Dr. Eric Wright, professor and chair of sociology at GSU. We're talking about their study on homelessness in, it, in youth homelessness in Atlanta, finding that more than half of those that they surveyed had experienced trafficking. So, Eric, you also found that while talking to these youth, they did not feel necessarily like they had been exploited. How, do, how does labeling them as, quote, victims of exploitation complicate their access both to understanding it for themselves and to services that might be able to help them? I think this was one of the biggest surprises. I think the system um, is very likely to label them as victims, but when they don't identify themselves as victims, they may not see necessarily a match between what the services that we're trying to offer them and how they're experiencing their lives. And I think that disconnect is um, suggests to us a need to think about how do we talk about engaging them in services um, in a new way that might actually make them more receptive to services mm -hmm. and help. So for that conversation, I'm just wondering about it. You know, somebody tells you, well, I was, you know, I was made to do this construction job and I wasn't paid and I was kept in a dormitory. Um, and you say, well, that's trafficking. I mean, did, what, what is the response in that kind of case? Are you telling them that they were trafficked or exploited? So as researchers, that is not our job right. to explain that to them. However, we did refer them to services. So if we would hear different things that they would tell us, we may not say, oh, you're being trafficked, but we may say, hey, this youth organization right here may be helpful for you. Maybe talk to this social worker that may be able to help you in the situation that you're in. And you did find, Anna, that peers and peer groups were very important to these young people living on 
the streets. How, what did those relationships look like? Um, these peer groups are very important for a myriad of reasons. So we found in our previous study in 2015 that most of our youth exited their social support services that they had when they were younger, so their families, and made these fictive kinship relationships. So in order for survival on the street, they really rely on one another in order to survive, to get food, to get jobs. Um, and this also interplays in the ways in which they can be exploited because their friends may have a job, say, at the construction site and say, hey, I get paid good money for Tuesday. I got paid X amount of money. And that's kind of how they all get into these kind of coercive situations. So, so th- th- that could be a sort of gateway. Their peer groups can be a gateway to these, these right. trafficked situations. Right. How about in terms of prosecutions? I know this is not your job either. You're not investigators, but is there any way that uh, uh, in terms of sex trafficking, you know, you want to find the ring, you want to find the perpetrators. How about in these labor trafficking situations? Is there have you been called upon to help understand what's going on here? We have been called on that, and we wouldn't be able to participate in that because that's actually part of the legal requirements associated with getting NIJ funding because their goal is to understand the problem. Mm -hmm. But I would say going back to your question or your point about sort of the ambiguity of these situations, I think we didn't necessarily see a lot of quote-unquote rings. Um, What we saw were a lot of young people who were banding together to cope, and I think what they would probably sort of say is we're just trying to make do. And so, and this is where, and sometimes the people that stood out to us would be young people who would, by the legal definition of Georgia law, qualify as traffickers because, in fact, they're kind of managing the exchange and the transactions with these different people, whether uh-huh. they're just exchanging drugs or whether they're exchanging sex or what have you. But then they're cooperatively working together to sort of make men's meet. And so I think that goes into their sort of psychology, if you will, because they're not necessarily seeing themselves as victims or seeing themselves as surviving on the streets. And these are just strategies that they find that they can be effective in getting themselves some food or some place to stay. Right, even as a part of a group. Mm -hmm. But you did speak to law enforcement agencies for your research. How did they understand or react to some of the more, those nuanced situations that you're talking about that you heard from homeless youth? Well, I think um, we've been having a lot of conversations over the last six months as we've been sharing preliminary results. And one of the things that we're learning is that they see the same complexities that we saw. And I think what you find is that prosecutors tend to Um, focus on the most egregious cases where there's pure and clear evidence that they meet the legal definitions. And I think the reality is that many of them we talk to is really sort of say the world is very murky when you're actually Mm -hmm. on the street Mm -hmm. and trying to find quote-unquote, cases of trafficking is not nearly as clear-cut as sometimes the rhetoric we hear in the news Mm -hmm. uh, makes us think it is. Well, in a city like Atlanta that has been gentrifying very quickly, one of the big problems that has been identified over and over again is affordable housing. Mm -hmm. How does that play into, if you're talking about youth who maybe left their home because they were rejected, because they were gay or trans or bi, how does that, do do, do they play into that system? Do they have access to those kind of housing uh, opportunities. No, and I think actually that's the other sort of major story. It's not, I mean, LGB and T youth get rejected from their families, but I think the vast majority of all of the youth um, have what I sort of think of as sort of the difficulties in launching into an adulthood or the transition to adulthood is very difficult. And it's in part because we just have a profound absence of affordable housing. So when you think about it, a young person gets mad or just gets tired of living at home and is ready to launch into adulthood, where do they land? And they may try, and then they end up not having enough resources or um, being able to sort of maintain a house. And so they end up homeless or they go in and out of housing situations that are very complex. 
So the lack of a strata of affordable housing is really about making it difficult for young people to launch successfully into adulthood. Another connection here is that you found that a lot of them had been through the foster care system or the criminal justice system. Is that another path that you identify? Or how does moving through these systems make them more vulnerable? Um, So we know that about 40% of our youth were in the foster care system at one point. Um, And these youth, oftentimes, they talk about moving from system to system. So some of the conversations we had with youth was that maybe foster care was not able to provide them what they needed in order for them to learn how to live, and then they ended up homeless. Um, The same thing as far as like being involved in the childhood, um, any kind of childhood system, such as DJJ or being arrested before the age of 18. Um, These are also highly correlated with trafficking in itself. So um, if you are in one of these systems, you're more likely to experience trafficking in your lifetime. So we are coming up against the break, but you know, the conversation about homelessness and youth and trafficking, obviously very negative in many ways. But you have said it's important to recognize that there are very positive, optimistic, future-oriented characteristics among these uh, different from the chronic adult homeless population. Based on your interaction with them quickly, I'm so sorry, but what's driving that optimism? I think it's being youth. I mean, I think one of the things Anna's actually dissertation is really focused in on resilience um, and understanding sort of why they're optimistic about the future. I think they're really just struggling to become an adult. And I think that's the source of a lot of this resilience. And I think what we think is happening is that over their young adulthood, as long as they keep running into these traumas, then they begin to get beaten down, so to speak. And if they continue to be homeless, then they become more like the long-term chronically homeless adults we see on the street. Dr. Eric Wright, thank you so much. And Anna LaBoy, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker Dacre, keeping up the family tradition, or perhaps the alive or undead family tradition. We're celebrating Halloween early with him.